1: Hello, and welcome to the February 2021 edition of Outward. I'm Brian Lauder, the editor of Outward, and the only valentine that I want this month is one from the IRS in the form of my stimulus check. Candy hearts are welcome, but not required.
2: Get that stimmy, Brian.
3: <laughs> I'm Ramon Alam, and as Brian said, it's February 2021, and when I am speaking to you, it is my children's winter break. Hmm. I'm not really sure what it is they require a break from besides winter <laughs> itself. <laughs> but thank God for those candy hearts. They're the only thing getting me through these unstructured wintry days.
2: Is that is it a winter break for you at all too, or is it like winter double your...
3: In so far, you know, in so far as I'm going to watch movies in the middle of the afternoon. Yes, it is also my winter break.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm Christina Cotterucci, a staff writer at Slate, and I have been carrying around a hot water bottle uh, all around my house with me. It has a cute little turtleneck sweater, and it really makes me feel like I'm a teenager in health class who's been asked to carry around a fake baby to, like, scare me out of teen pregnancy or something (laughs) but it is keeping me warm it's my valentine this year is
1: is it also scaring you out of teen pregnancy
2: it is yeah i'm (laughs) definitely not gonna have unprotective procreative sex after
1: this (laughs) (laughs) great great Uh, very glad that's working um all right so here at outward headquarters as the weather shows hints of spring and vaccines begin to roll out in earnest we're starting to think about connection. Uh, how have we queers done it in the past? And how do we want to do it again in the nearish future as quarantines and lockdown restrictions begin to ease? In that spirit, we'll spend part of today's show discussing Gay Bar, a new book from author Jeremy Atherton Lynn that weaves history, criticism, and memoir into an attempt to understand that institution's storied place in our community. Then we'll turn to the apps, specifically the about your old queer dating and friendship app, Lex, to look at how these virtual meeting spaces are changing the way we connect. After that, we'll have our usual updates to the gay agenda, but first, it is time, as always, for Pride and Provocations. Christina, I think you should start us off because I think you have a sort of special uh, I have pride. A special
2: pride. <laughs> yeah. Listeners, I'm proud of you. So I was pleasantly surprised that so many people answered my call to respond to our gaze over covid segment from our january episode um i you know a lot of times we ask for people to write in with their comments and experiences and we'll like maybe get one person if we're lucky but several of you had thoughts to share on this one so i'm going to read some quotes from their emails many of which were quite thoughtful Um, One listener said he's been featured on Gaze Over COVID three times and received hundreds of death threats after his Puerto Vallarta trip. He said he feels sadness, frustration and deep disappointment with our community's reaction and vile behavior, meaning the death threats. He has no regrets about going on his trip.
4: Um, I had gone with a couple of my close friends from Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, here in Canada, to Puerto Vallarta for a few weeks, and uh, just of uh, something that we do pretty much every year, uh, in an attempt to escape, you know, the cold weather and, and whatnot. And I knew that there would potentially be some backlash, but never to in a million years would I have anticipated uh, it to have been to the degree that it was. And, and I spent. A majority of the trip in complete shock slash disconnect as to why all of these vile and horrible things were being said about me. Uh and I wanted to to make mention that when myself and my friends were in public places, such as restaurants or retail stores or in Ubers, taxis, etc., never once have we not worn a mask or not abided by any of the local uh restrictions or, 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 or essentially rules that were put in place. Uh, it was brought to my attention by some friends in Vancouver that my, my name was being essentially dragged through the mud and there were some pretty horrible, disgusting things that were said about me, um, completely unrelated to me going to Mexico um, simply for the fact that I went to Mexico. Instead of engaging in this and making this some sort of unnecessary civil war. I simply just let it trickle down the way it did. And uh, it it went on for quite a while. People had attempted to to, uh, have me fired from my job unsuccessfully. But the moral of the story was, is that I knew that I was going to get some backlash by posting a little video. But my objective was to show people that these things still go on, and I'm not talking about circuit parties in general, but I'm talking about business as usual it does go on, but we just need to be smart and do things a little bit differently. And the last point that I wanted to make uh, in this is that I've been to Mexico I don't know how many times in my life, and never once have I ever felt so welcome, ever by the Mexican people. And and some of the Uber drivers had told me flat out that we can't even think about COVID-19 when we don't even have money to put on our family's table to serve food because they've essentially thrive on tourism and, and nothing else. So that's that. Uh, I hope that I gave you some valuable points and in the meantime, stay safe everyone and keep well. Bye-bye.
2: Another listener sent an extremely thoughtful uh, and introspective 10 minute video. So uh, we'll play a clip from that. Uh, this guy is 32, living in DC. Maybe I've seen you around. <laughs> uh, he's been going to circuit parties with his fiance for four years and wanted to point out that these conversations have been happening within the circuit party scene for many months. The gaze over COVID stuff uh, is really just built up frustration and anger, sort of boiling over in large part from people mm. who are part of that circuit party scene and don't think it's responsible to be going out and partying. So here's him.
5: I live in Washington, D.C., I'm 32, um, and there, I've been going to circuit parties for about four years. Um, so the, I, the thing I, I think that the part of the conversation that was missing just maybe by lack of, um, I guess the host's social uh, circles, is that this conversation is one that has been going on about uh, gay men partying during COVID has been going on since March? You know, in DC, people have, were having private, you know, circuit house parties right after we went into lockdown in the middle of March, and, and this was happening in a lot of other cities, right? And so this discussion. Um, I think got really big at the end of May, and beginning of June. When cities like Atlanta started hosting big, huge circuit parties, the reaction that people are getting now is months of people feel like they've been screaming into the wind. And so, personally, at the end of May. Um, maybe beginning of June, uh, someone sent me a video of a party from Atlanta and was like, oh my God, look, like it's hundreds of people. And they're like, I'm just gonna be honest with you. I was at this party. I found out that I contracted COVID afterwards. And so like people need to know and no one's talking about it because Atlanta is being so hush. And so I posted the video saying like, hey, if you were here last night, get tested. I, people have said that they were um, there and, and, and they had it and I got such an insane negative reaction with very little content. It didn't really say much in my post. Um, and so the discussion around shame, I think is missing the component that like, people have been behaving this way for a while and they know it's wrong and they just don't want anyone to catch them. And so like, it, it's a breaking of a social contract that I think people are um, really upset about is that like, I've had to sacrifice all this and all the work that I and people well, that are behaving like me have done is being undone because you needed to go party and then come back to the gym or to the grocery store or all this, right? Like it, it, I think we've got to stop just looking at the party itself and open it up to the broader impact and what it says about the type of behavior that we allow. I think the reactions that people are having are pent up anger of, of years of You know not being able to challenge us in a way
2: we also got an email from a lovely listener in rio a slate plus member no less thank you for your support uh this guy loves circuit parties has been to all the big ones but did not go to any parties in rio around new year's because he said it's irresponsible and egotistical in my view We are, unfortunately, the second country in number of deaths because of COVID behind just the U.S. With that situation, to just throw these kinds of parties is really shameless. On the other hand, I'm not sure that public shaming all the people who were there and or going public with their names and contacts, that's not very productive. I think you just put them far away, isolate them, and that's the end of the conversation. He says he hasn't had sex since March, but is taking comfort— that he's doing the right thing, and just trying to enjoy this time the best way I can. I'm doing courses, improving my English, learning German, reading books that I promised myself 100 years ago that I would read but never did, like War and Peace, The Brothers Karamazov, Jane Eyre's Charlotte Bronte. Yeah, me too. Same, just learning German <laughs> in my spare time. Uh, and finally, from a first-time listener and probably last-time listener, uh, Brian is right that COVID shaming will never work. I went to Mexico for Thanksgiving. I posted pictures. I got tested before and after the trip. I had pleasure, which apparently Christina and Ruman have a problem with. <laughs> So shame away, I own it. I'm proud that I don't live in fear and feel self-righteous and judgmental about how other people live their lives. The recent gay totalitarianism that I have observed in the past year are very surprising to me. Since when did LGBTQ become such moral arbiters and try to force conformity to the norm? And those of you who are proud of your hermit lives and calling out the rest of us, yeah, I don't want to be part of your community. (laughs) Mm. So actually, maybe that's my pride (laughs) this month. I'm proud of my hermit
1: life. (laughs) You guys are so boring. God.
3: Hermit life.
2: (laughs) But seriously, I really appreciated all these responses. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of ways to approach responsible living during this pandemic. And I'm glad that we have such a diversity of opinion in our listenership.
3: I mean, I love talking to the two of you once a month. It's lovely to also have people talk back to us a little bit, and yes. we try to have a conversation in this format, but that conversation like i I think it's satisfying when our listeners participate in that conversation. you know, it makes mm-hmm. my hermit life a little less lonely.
2: <laughs> We're welcoming you into our hermit crab shell,
3: yeah,
1: and i I also think even as we you know move away in time from you know those new year's events specifically this this conversation about Community. What what kind of community are we? What does that mean? What what responsibility does that mean we have to each other? Is only continuing. Um, and I think it's I think it's you know e- and even even as, as COVID you know eventually it becomes not as much of a, a problem. Um, I think those those questions are going to linger. So I'm glad folks joined us in thinking about it, and um, hope we can continue to have that conversation going forward for sure. Brian, how are you feeling this month? I um have a, a quick provocation um uh, related to COVID actually, so we'll just do it fast. Um you may have our listeners may have heard of uh the case of Stacy Griffith, who is a soul cycle instructor here in New York. I'm a very famous one, also a lesbian, which is why she's part of our discussion. Um <laughs> who became infamous uh in the past uh, couple weeks for um going ahead and getting that COVID vaccine, even though she really wasn't part of any category that uh, was up for it here in New York yet. Um, she claimed that she was doing it under the auspices of being a teacher. Um, she is a soul cycle teacher, but I know that that is what um, the government meant when they were, when they were you know, laying out that term as part of the, uh, as part of the list of, of initial people um, you know, she she's probably I mean, this is probably a case, there's a lot of people doing this. So it's probably a case of one person being maybe a little bit unfairly, like held up as the as the bad example. Um, But even so, this is not good. You know, I, I do hope that we can expect better of our fellow queers. And, you know, it's true that Really, the thing to criticize, as as always with COVID, is the government failure, and that's it, that has continued to be true into uh, the vaccination so far. Although the Biden administration, is, I think, is trying to fix that, but we're still sort of left with the fallout of of just the the non strategy of the of the Trump administration. So it is a little bit of a free for all, and it's not surprising that people might might uh, do this kind of thing. But that doesn't mean we can't be ethical ourselves. And so um, if you Look at the case of Miss Stacy, um, that is maybe not behaving ethic- ethically and uh, I think we should all try to do a little bit
3: better. Especially soul cycle, you know.
2: My um favorite or least favorite part of her response was mm-hmm. she also seemed to consider herself a healthcare worker. <laughs> yes. She's like I'm <laughs> I'm keeping my students respiratory systems yeah. so they can fight COVID if they get
1: it. I have I have the quote here. Yeah. I function as a common point for many overlapping people. In my profession of health and wellness as a teacher, it's my priority daily to keep my community and their respiratory systems operating at full capacity <laughs> so they can beat this virus if they are infected. Um, yeah. So, you know, I guess, but uh, also I, I don't agree
3: <laughs> at all man she um, should go work in politics that's like I that's know, like some very so impressive spin you know nice that very nice spin. phrasing yeah yeah, yeah. So, but, um, she, know, did, uh, should, she did i wish she did she did apologize i should say that
1: event after much uh, condemnation so maybe she's learned the error of her way but
3: um yeah
2: <laughs> ruman how are you doing
3: I'm good. I'm feeling proud. About a year ago this time, I spoke to the writer and artist Myra Kelman for the other podcast I work on at Slate, which is called Working. And Myra told me something that she has said a lot in public, that she begins her day by reading the obituaries. It's a really interesting way to think about beginning your morning, um part of my 2021 was trying to look at Twitter less so far, like mixed bag, mixed results Mm -hmm. there. But, um, I have been trying to look directly at the news, directly at slate, directly at the New York times, whatever. And, um, that is where I learned, um, because of his death of the life of Joseph Sonnabend, who was a physician who was very active in the AIDS crisis, um, in New York city when he was a younger man. Um, he was a gay man himself. And that sort of That informed his um, practice of medicine, and he was just one of those um, everyday people on the ground level of that crisis who became – who sort of chose to just do something extraordinary by committing themselves to – not only care, but research. Um, So there's an obituary for him in the Times that was published on January 30th of this year um, that I highly recommend by a woman named Catherine Q. Seeley um, at the New York Times. Um, I do think it's a good practice to begin your day by reading the obituaries. And I do think it's a nice reminder of these sort of aspects of gay history that pass right in front of us. And um, so that is my pride.
2: Wow. That uh, seems like a good reminder of your mortality, too. You know? I, think
3: that's why, I think that's why Myra recommends it, this sort of way of reminding yourself that there are extraordinary lives happening around mm-hmm. you and confronting them at the moment of their passage reminds you that like you should get off your ass and <laughs> make a podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and yeah. stay in your house.
3: <laughs> and stay in your house, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, speaking of getting on with your life, making the podcast you were born to make, (laughs) uh, I'm very excited to talk to both of you and our esteemed colleague, June Thomas, who is joining us for a segment. I'm going to read you something to kick this off. When I say gay bar, you might picture a salon of effete dandies engaged in witty banter, a layer of brutes in black leather, a pathetic spot on the edge of town flying a lackluster rainbow flag for its sole denizen, one lonely hard drinker. Of course, the gay bar can be all these things and more. Many of us have believed finding a home in such a place meant finding oneself. Late at night, all the men in the room are referred to as boys. Hello, boys, shouts the drag queen. And this approximation of Neverland evinces a mindset of perennial searching. These are Jeremy Atherton Lynn's words from his just published book, Gay Bar, which is, well, the question of what it is exactly is one of the first things that we should get into. It's a dash of memoir, a bit of cultural history, maybe an ode to the institution itself, which as Lynn writes in the section from which I just read, is maybe less a place than a mindset of perennial searching. Like I said, our colleague June Thomas is joining us for this conversation, which is fitting because June's own writing on the gay bar <laughs> is quoted in Lynn's <gasps> book. Oh, wow! Really, that is a measure of true fame. That is a real <laughs> mic drop on June Thomas's part. June, welcome to Outward. Good to have you.
6: Thank you, Ruman.
3: Um, I wanted to call on Christina first, not to put you on blast, Christina, but I did see that you had very enthusiastically Instagrammed a passage from this book, and so I felt like maybe you should get us started. And her story is no less. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My
2: story. I didn't. I didn't put it on the grid, but um, I did have a couple of people s- tell me that they bought the book based on this pas- Based on this passage that I posted.
1: Influencer. Influencer. Um,
2: so, <laughs> it is. No secret to anybody who listens to this podcast that I love a gay bar. Um, So Jeremy Atherton Lynn has a bit of a different relationship to gay bars than I do, in part because of our different ages and genders. So for him, the different bars that he writes about in the book were like different identities that he was observing and trying on. Um, But... The book really spoke to um, and reflected a lot of the roles that gay bars have played in my life. And in the passage that I posted to Instagram, he writes, identity wasn't about finding something within a cicada biting time in my underground, but about sensing myself out in the world. And this is the big draw of a gay bar for me. It's a place to feel out how I fit into my queer surroundings, which is also mm. then how I fit into the world. Um, And early in the pandemic on this podcast, I talked about how I was feeling less like myself because I wasn't going out. And I realized in that moment that my like gender sexuality self doesn't and maybe can't exist in a vacuum And it's Uh through interactions Uh with other people, um, strangers and friends, and also like dressing up for those interactions that I am able to actually perform myself and fully grasp and be myself. And reading this book was, I just felt such a deep and intense uh, longing for these places where you are either meeting, actually all at once, like meeting friends, Mm -hmm. uh, seeing people you already know, running into people who you've seen a bunch of places, but maybe you don't actually know each other, but eventually you recognize each other enough times that you feel like you know each other. And also being uh, confronted with brand new people who might help you learn something about yourself or become a person in your life. Um, does, Does any of that ring true for you guys?
6: It did for me. I really liked it um, because, I mean, I liked it in small doses. I I think I would have been happier even. I enjoyed it. It I have a very positive view of this book. But I think I would have liked it even more if it had been one short story instead of, you know, because essentially uh, they're snapshots. The chapters are snapshots of different experiences, different selves that he presents at different bars in different places. Um, And I, you know, after a while, it's like, yeah, yeah, you've had a lot of selves, bro. And, you know, that's (laughs) correct. But, um, you know, I, the thing that I really appreciated about it was that, and work with me here, like poetry, it evoked a feeling. Like it wasn't, like, you know, there was a certain pretentiousness about it. Like, whoa, Verlaine, okay, you've read your Verlaine, but you also are like <laughs> touching some dirty boy's dick. You know, like it was it was all human life is here, you know. But, but also, like, I, I felt that... You know, those feelings that you get in a gay bar that, I mean, I'd never go out. I'm in bed by 10. Like, my my gay bar days are behind me, sadly. But that feeling of like, yeah, this is where you, in a way, you are your most authentically gay in company, not just Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. a lover, not just like, I mean, I'm one of those people who's like, whatever I'm doing, I'm always seen as gay. It's not that it's, I need to be in a special place. I'm very comfortable with my gayness. But when you're in a gay bar, there's that feeling of like... Oh my god, that feeling that happens like everybody's dancing, there's like you've, oh my god, we're reaching transcendence, and you have that goofy grin on your face. And that it is a special place. But as he observes, it can also be a fucking shithole. Like a lot of gay bars are crap, crap bars with crappy service and crappy, you know, whatever. Like it's there's a tendency, including in my own writing about them, to act like, oh, there are refuge, there are history, there are patrimony. They are are also a lot of other things and I like that he was able to express a variety of the things that that they are and can be yeah Brian I feel like you
2: are you don't maybe agree with that as much based on the little look on your face right now
1: (laughs) no as I'm thinking about it I mean I I was I sort of caught on June's use of the word transcendence because so, so I'll just say I I went in um really expecting to be like this to be a book like for me, like I, it's, it's so much the kind of, um, thing, both content wise or subject wise and, and sort of approach that I, I might like, but I felt very alienated from it. And I think it's because I, I'm trying to sort of sort through in real time why, but I, I think it's because my feelings about gay bars are of the sort of transcendent, Uh, sanctuary, temple, kind of... Like, all of those words are a little overstated, as you say, June, but, but that is kind of my fundamental feeling. In almost every gay bar I go to, even if it isn't the... Even if the sort of crowd is one of those different subcultures that Christina was describing that isn't necessarily mine, I'm always actually kind of happy to be in their space and like, and sort of celebrate their identity the way they celebrate it. It's I, I enjoy the chameleon aspect that the sort of multiple subcultures things allow. So the, the writer of this book, uh, Jeremy Atherton Lynn is, is sort of has a sort of um, aloofness and suspicion and, and never, as far as I can tell, like fully, Fully like gets into that transcendent state in a gay bar, um, and so that that was strange to me. I, I I don't know. I found it sort of confusing to spend so much you know time writing about an institution that I'm not entirely sure that you like like that much. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe that's unfair, but but I, but I think it, it's it it his emotional orientation to it did not speak like did not at all reflect the way that I, that I, that I love gay bars.
2: I think maybe part of the issue there is he, by the end of it, I felt like he was conflating the experience of being in a gay bar and the experience of picking up men, which a lot of people, myself included a gay bar plays a lot more roles than just that. I mean,
1: that's secondary.
3: Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that like the, the, The project he set up for himself, which is to remix the personal and the historical and the cultural, it inevitably leads to this kind of disconnect where, like, you're interested in the historical stuff and then the personal stuff begins to feel like, I I, I can't relate to this or I can't quite situate myself in the same place as you because we are different people. He does say this thing in the book that I thought was really striking. We go out to be gay. We crave this when once again growing bored with the straight world. It made me think of actually in our last episode, Christina, you talked about you forgetting how to tie a bow tie. Yeah, <laughs> and so that like sad. that the requirement of an access to a larger world to remind you of exactly who you are. And um and it's not connected, like for the author, it seems, that seems intimately connected to the pursuit of sex or the experience of sex. But as you're saying, it can be about this other thing. It can be as simple as like putting on a bow tie and being with your queers at the, you know, like having a fancy night out, like whatever that is. like That's an interesting experience. It's sort of hard to articulate, but in the book, it does feel like it is mostly articulated through the experience of sex.
1: There are, Many different kinds of bars, and the book does a good job of, I think, of, of showing that. But there are there are bars that are more focused on sex, that are like cruisy sort of spaces, and bars that are focused on preening, and then there are like the sort of neighborhoody dive bars that I think, by dint of maybe where they're located geographically and and who's around have a, a sort of a more mixed use energy and those are the ones that I happen to love. Those are the ones that I think that are most the most interesting and allow for all of the different kinds of interactions that I think you know that I value and would miss very much. So you can be you can be sort of jaundiced about them or you can be open to magic and like and and sort of seek it out but you have to you have to, locate those places and hold on to them fiercely, I guess. Um,
6: Yeah, I mean, I I certainly have. I mean, and again, one of the things I enjoyed about this book was that it was not a eulogy, which is not to say that there weren't eulogistic, eulogistic, (laughs) you, whatever, that there weren't notes of, of eulogy in it, but that it kind of felt like it was... It was seeing a broad range of of things. Um, So, for example, you know, in I think it's the first chapter, there's a a piece about uh, a London bar, the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, appealing for like historical status so it wouldn't Mm -hmm. be closed down. And he, you know, he quite rightly kind of mocks some of the claims because like, no, come on, special pleading at the same time, maybe we need special pleading because... You know, yeah, you know, for the, we don't need to rehearse all the reasons that, you know, life is not, you know, just because you don't have a gay bar in your town or just don't have a lesbian bar in your town anymore doesn't mean that, you know, life is over. But, um, you know, it it's very hard when you are living your life to acknowledge that something that is very valuable to you has had its moment and we're now in another historical phase and something new is appearing and it might be better it might not be but that that's how time works. When you're <laughs> living in it you don't want to like acknowledge that you want to hold on to the things that you enjoy and that are meaningful to you um, but uh, you know it, it there is this feeling of we're we're, we're nostalgic, queens you know and we, we just want to we want to hold on um both and you know that's one of the reasons that we kind of sometimes like i think um the slightly seedy type of, of situation you know there's a, a phrase that i uh associate very much with gay bars nostalgie de la boue." you know the nostalgia for the mud um mm-hmm. for the kind of the nasties you know <laughs> the, the the crummy way things used to be that in a way maybe we kind of like to have that little free son of not danger, because it's much more dangerous outside of a gay bar to be visibly gay, um, but there's, you know, that we enjoy that and maybe maybe it's just trying to hold on to something that we need to let go of.
3: I did want to point out that I went to one of the bars that he mentions. I went to the Ooh. Club Night Pop Stars when I was myself a student in London, which is where, you know, that's the circumstances in which he went there uh, and also. And that
2: was like his ultimate Club night.
3: Yeah, that's where he met his partner, right? Yeah. Um, and, man, reading that made me feel so old. Like, <laughs> just, like, put me on an ice floe and send me out into the Arctic. Like, What
2: was your relationship to gay bars at that point?
3: I mean, I was such a baby, I don't even <laughs> really remember. I would have been 19 years old. It was 1996 that I was in London. Um I I can't conjure for the life of me what it was like to go to that thing. Um, what it looked like, what I did, what people looked like. I just can't, like, I can't access that memory at all anymore. Um, But it was a big deal to be in London. It was a big deal. I remember, like, we would buy Time Out magazine and, like, read about it and, like, figure out where you're supposed to go and how much money it would cost and all of that way of making your way in the world. That's what the book really most reminded Mm -hmm. me of, is less the experience of being inside these places than in remembering what it was like to buy Time Out magazine and figure out Hmm. how to, Mm -hmm. like save your money, like <laughs> buy less food that week so that you could afford to go to a club. It just seems so like cute somehow. Um, and, you know, I think June's right. Like things are different now. They're different now. And I, and they will be different still when we emerge from the cultural shift that we are sort of in the center of right now. And it's really hard to say what will, what lies on the other side is, is, every city going to see rents decline precipitously? And are we going to see, like, canny, you know, gender non-conforming artists, like, pool their resources and open up a bar that, like, welcomes all people? Or are we going to see, you know, rents skyrocket and every restaurant in New York City is going to be a Subway or a Pizza Hut? Like, there's just... We just don't know yet. God. (laughs) Grim, right? That's a bleak, (laughs) bleak Um, way of thinking about
2: it. I... Two had gone to a couple of the bars I think that he mentions one of which he calls a gray bar which I think is a very um clever way of referring to a bar that's not explicitly or exclusively gay but caters to a largely queer clientele mm. the one he talks about or one of the ones he talks about is El Rio in San Francisco which he lived above and which <laughs> I have had several wonderful afternoons at. They're known for their daytime parties. Um, And one of the things that I like best about queer bars is to go to them when I'm traveling or when I'm alone somewhere. And that's the kind of thing that an app really can't replace is the ability to just drop in somewhere no matter what day of the week it is or what time of the month it is and have the opportunity to meet people who are already a little bit inclined to be friendly to you.
6: <laughs> well, and in a way, that's when you need it most, right? When you're in your totally. hometown. I mean, if you have a community, if you're part of a community, if you need that hit of gay, you know where you can find it. You know, might be in your home. It might, you know, whatever. But when you go somewhere and you, that's when you kind of feel that need of, how can I ground myself with with, exactly. with my people? Um, so yeah, if you like need to, you know, consult uh, an atlas and a, and a calendar to figure out, well, if the moon's in the seventh house and it's February, I guess there'll be a party in this bar. Like, no, nobody can do that when you don't belong in that community. Yeah.
3: Well, at this point, almost a year into varying degrees of quarantine, it's simply nice to talk with a bunch of nerds about what it might be like to someday go to a bar. And I hope that before too long, we are at a bar again with one another. The drinks are on June Thomas. Um, (laughs) June, thank you for joining us for our discussion. We were talking about Jeremy Atherton Lynn's book, Gay Bar. Thanks again, June.
6: Thank you for having me.
2: Queer women and the people who date them have sometimes had a rough go of it when it comes to dating and hookup apps. The big, explicitly gay apps have all been for gay men, and other apps that were built for straight people, like Tinder and Bumble, have sometimes made it really hard, to varying degrees, for queer people to find each other in intuitive ways. There's always a lot of man woman couples on there looking for a third, which isn't the sort of advance that some lesbians want on a hookup app. And for trans people or queers interested in dating trans people, the gender filters on these apps can make the dating pool too broad or too narrow, or just not exactly what you want to see. So there's not a good way, for instance, to say you're into non-binary people and trans men, but don't want to see any cis men on your feed. Lex has tried to offer a solution. It's a queer dating app that launched toward the end of 2019, and it's explicitly intended for everyone but cisgender men, which is more in line with how a lot of queer people, excuse me, which is more in line with how a lot of queer women and trans people actually socialize and hook up. Uh, Lex also diverges from the typical dating app in two big ways. First, it's entirely text-based in the style of old-school Personals ads. It actually started in 2017 as an Instagram account called Personals, so you can link your Instagram account, but there are no photos on the app. And second, it has become kind of an all-purpose hub for organizing in-person gatherings, even those that don't revolve around sex. So I know somebody who joined a roller skating meetup that started on Lex. I've heard of a queer literature club. Some people post just looking to meet friends. Um, And we have a guest this month to chat about this new approach to dating apps and how queers connect in digital space, Writer Shelly Nicole, who wrote Auto Autostraddle about her experience on Lex in November. Welcome, Shelly. Hi. So when did you start posting on Lex, and what were you hoping to get out of the app?
0: Right. So I originally posted on the app um, when it was back on personals, like when it was still on the Instagram account. And... Got a little traction here and there. But then when it switched over to the app, um, I was probably, honestly, one of the first people to, like, throw my ad up there because I just thought it was so amazing. I thought it was just really cool way to meet people. Um, it was a really good version of a dating app that I had seen because I am a Taurus, so I love wittiness, and <laughs> I, I want you to impress me and charm me with your words mm, first, yeah. you know? And so I was probably... One of the first folks to put up an ad on it and it was really dope. I thought it was really cool. I got a lot of play and then I also loved that um, I saw a bunch of other people using it and it wasn't, it was specifically at that point still a very dating hookup centered app. So a lot of the other things like people looking for roommates and book clubs, that wasn't on there yet which is also, was also one of the main draws for me. Was that people were there looking to hook up and looking to go on dates? Because in the queer women culture, usually they don't think that of us. You know, it's like we're mm. always just looking for a relationship or we're looking to like hold hands with somebody for four hours. And it's like, <laughs> no, we too want to hook up. And I loved that this is exactly what that was doing for me, and it was great.
3: Um, I was just—I'm just really curious, Shelly, if you can talk about. Um, what it means to you or what it meant to you at the time that this was all taking place via words and not images. I am um, I'm, I find that so striking. And the name itself, I guess we should say, is derived from the word lexicon. Um, but, you know, you mentioned, you know, kind of jokingly that, like, you want to be talked to, you want to be flirted with, you want to be... But, you know, I wonder if you could just talk about your personal experience of not being able to see the people with whom you were communicating and what that meant for the whole experience for you.
0: Yeah. So that was a a big part for me. Um, especially just because yes, I am a person who definitely like needs physical attraction, right? Um, you can be as witty as the day is long, but if I don't, Want to make? I was going to say something very naughty, but I'll edit it. <laughs> we, we can use
2: explicit uh,
0: language on uh, the podcast. Okay, uh, don't say that because <laughs> I was going to say you can be as witty as the day is long, but if I don't want to like sit on your face, then we're going to have an issue. That's what <laughs> the thing is right. for me. And as a queer woman, I think being able to just say something like that is also so like always so like oh my gosh, but. um I still do want to have that conversation though. You know what I mean? So being able to like find out someone's personality through these words that they use, especially what exactly they say, like astrology. Like if all of your whole thing is about astrology, that makes me interested in your ad because I too am into astrology. So that makes me know that like, before we get to making out, we'll have something to talk about as well. Um, and I just thought that was a really big draw too. But what I, I didn't like, about the just using the people just allowing themselves to use their words where sometimes people will post things like I don't know what to say and like that was their whole ad was like I'm right. I don't know what to say about myself and that was supposed to be the draw but in reality it it's not because if you don't know what you want to say about yourself on this ad it's not going to make me want to click on it you know so right. then Though, what Lex also does is they allow you to connect the Instagram, you know? So I kind of use it twofold. I find an ad that I that took me in. Maybe you talked about, like I said, astrology. Maybe you talked about a plant or something like that. And then it takes me to the next step of being like, oh, am I also going to be physically attracted to you as well? And it was always very 50-50 with me for that. It was, wasn't all the time that just because I liked someone's ad was I also physically attracted to them. But for me, and also for Danny and Drew, who I uh, wrote the piece with on on Autostraddle, we all agreed that that was okay. It's okay to be in this zone where you're attracted to someone's words, but then opt not to go further because there's no physical attraction there, you know?
2: Yeah, so when you guys wrote that piece, um, I noticed that, you know, this was maybe a year after Lex had launched. And when you revisited it, you felt a little more ambivalent. What was that about?
0: Yeah, it was because... Okay, so for every Lex ad that you had that was really just about someone posting midday on a Thursday, just being like, I would like to get anonymously railed by a hot dyke this afternoon. <laughs> There's 15 other ads where they just want to hold hands or read books or join a book club or sell something. And it was just like, this is not the lane that that was for. You know what I mean? It's what it kind of converted itself into somehow. And we don't have these apps for queer women like Grinder and, and Scruff, where you can, Play like close distance dykes and stuff like that. And I don't think anyone has found like a safe way to do it. So there's that. But Lex came so close to being uh, allowing us mm-hmm. to have a, a hookup app, es- essentially for queer women. Um, and it just made us all, I think, really sad about that aspect of it because it's just my issue with how queer women are portrayed uh, in so many places. It's like, it's assumed that we're all inherently soft, right? Like all we want to do is go on 18 hour dates where we talk about our trauma and cry and then book a U-Haul and then four to six business weeks, maybe there's a kiss and two cats, you know? (laughs) And it's like, that's not all of us, you know what I mean? And I, it saddened me that Lex had went from this like super sexy hookup app to essentially like a roommate or book club thing that you're talking about. And it just, it saddened all three of us actually. And now it's like when you post on it, if you are looking for a hookup, I mean, pandemic, so maybe don't. But like if you are looking for something like that, your ad doesn't get any traction anymore. It's like everyone is just wants to go on these cute Zoom dates where, you know, we watch a movie or something like that and not have like virtual sex, you know, and I, we hated that aspect about it, the switch. I
2: feel bad for Lex in a way because mm. it launched like less than six months before the pandemic, So I had the same experience as you, Shelly, where like I went on it when it first launched. Actually, I had followed personals when it was on Instagram. And it was like so flirtatious, so sexy. And not even all of them were about what specific, you know, sex acts you wanted to do. But they were people putting their best face forward. And even just scrolling through was like a little bit of escapism and fantasy. And that's part of the fun of a hookup or dating app whether you contact someone or not, is imagining yourself possibly contacting any of these people um, and, you know, putting yourself in the situations that they're describing. What what the app has become in the pandemic, you know, I re-logged in recently when we wanted to talk about it for the podcast, and it was honestly really depressing. It seemed like there were a lot of people um, reaching out for help. Like, I'm just going to read a couple posts. Heartbroken. My emotions are in a really weird place and I just need someone to talk to. Another one. I'm having surgery in two weeks. I have no family at all anywhere near here and don't know anyone that can come help me. It really sucks. Another person asked if anyone could give them advice on recovering from feeling suicidal. Another one said, how are you finding motivation to keep living through this pandemic? And it it's really hard because obviously this is a place where people feel comfortable reaching out for help. Maybe in a way they don't feel comfortable asking friends or family. Um, They feel more comfortable being like semi-anonymous on this app. And I think the app has done a good job of being a pretty highly regulated safe space, so to speak. You know, you get a lot of reminders about like transphobia, racism aren't tolerated. um, And, you know, you're in this space designed for queer people, but it was designed as a dating and hookup app. And it feels like, okay, well, this person just posted that they're feeling suicidal. Now I'm going to post about, I want to get, you know, rail me daddy. Like that, it seems insensitive. And also like scrolling through, I'm like, well, I'm not aroused anymore. You know, like, (laughs) and
0: like, think about it too, though. What really blew me about that was like, even during the pandemic, right? I think a lot of people, um, were lesbians were used as this new guide right because what are we used to long distance dating right we were like oh y'all are in our field now welcome you're crying <laughs> that you you can't see your girlfriend who lives two block try having a girlfriend in australia for six months and being like baby, when i see you and then just fucking all the time like on the computer and stuff like that so my thing was like when the pandemic happened, I was expecting Lex to flourish, right? Because I was like, this is our lane. We do this. Like, we do this long distance stuff. We come up with, this is our field. And instead of us being able to be these sort of guides, or not even a guide, but to sort of like being able to fall, lean into our, our power that we usually, this is our our, our field, we went the other way. Mm. And I just was so upset about that because I genuinely thought that this was not gonna be a huge issue for dykes, right? I just, I really thought this was, I mean, satisfying, you know, people, emotional connections, stuff like that, but I just thought that sexually or on an intimate level too, we would be able to succeed in this. And we went the opposite way of now leaning into these terrible stereotypes that people put on us is just that we just want to talk trauma and and we want to connect through that and we want you know and that's yeah that's a part of any I think relationship but it gets put on queer women that that's the major part of ours and now we're unfortunately making the stereotype have some traction right yeah. like which
2: sucks yeah. I feel like it what Lex feels like now is a message board, but without the validation of being able to comment on people's posts. So it's, and, you know, I'm not suggesting that they have the, like, person power to make this happen. But it feels like there should be different segments of the app for different needs. So like a community bulletin board where you can post about here, here's some uh, resource for free meals if you need free meals or if you'd like to donate, which is another thing people were posting about. Uh, or you know, here, let's organize a clothing swap. Then maybe another area for people to post about their mental health struggles. And then another one for dating and sex because it doesn't all make sense in the same co- column.
0: My issue with that is, like, cute, great idea, right? But, like, why do we have to do that? You know what I mean? Like, why is it on this dating app that was specifically meant for Mm -hmm. all these queer types of babes to come and date and hook up? Why do we have to now be like, okay, y'all are out here sad and (laughs) wanting to donate. So, here, here, here. It's like, because... Think of the other dating apps for other people. Grindr doesn't have that. No, I. You know <laughs> what I mean. Scruff isn't out here being the idea like that, like
2: Grinder could even bring itself. To exactly. Put it.
0: <laughs> but it's, what I would like is for people to laugh at the idea that a queer woman dating app would yeah. be having to do something like that. Yeah. You yeah. know. And yeah. I think one of the keys to it is moving it back to the platform of Instagram. You know, I think. And I think maybe someone would see that having reverting it back to just being on Instagram as it was when I was on personals as a fail, um, you know, being like we started this whole app. And I don't think so, because I think if you revert something back to s- the simplicity of how the su- how successful it was on Instagram, then it allows for more of that sexiness to come back, right? Because Instagram now does this thing with disappearing messages. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It, it allows you to post your thirst trap to your story. You can make a close friends of all the Lex girls that you're currently hooking up with, you know? And I feel like instead of opening it up to being like, oh, let's allow more sweetness and do like a donation in a community board shut that shit down and get back to basics because I just am like, I love that you want to donate sis, but I'm not here for that. I, I don't care. Yes, I am for the people and more power to them, but let's get at it. Show me your boobs. You know what I mean? Like It's this whole thing. And I hate that we as queer women have to have to or queer uh women have to like do something like that yeah and be like you know it, it sucks i want and this is going to sound maybe a little trite but i hope people understand what i say when i'm um when i say it i want people to look at a queer woman a uh, dating app and be like and think of like Scruff or grinder, mm-hmm. you know what I mean yeah. I want people to be like when they see me on it in the bar looking over my shoulder and I they're like oh sure. sis is on she's on that yeah, <laughs> well wrap it up and it's like yeah, yeah you know what I'm doing but we don't we don't have that you know yeah. and it
2: saddens me so much well thank you so much Shelly Nicole again Shelly wrote a great piece uh, with two colleagues on Autostraddle thank you so much for joining us Thank you for having me. And best of luck. <laughs> yeah, Happy, of hunting, luck. Out there. Happy yeah. hunting out there.
0: Listen, I'm going to keep trying. Don't you worry. <laughs>
2: oh, I'm not. I'm sure you
3: will.
1: <laughs> just a quick note for our listeners. Um, since Shelly's great piece was in Auto Straddle, I just wanted to flag that Autostraddle is having a fundraiser right now. Um, like most media outlets in 2020, they suffered from a lack of advertising. Um, it, it sort of dried up for everybody for a while there during the pandemic. And so um, they had a tough go of it um, and had to do fundraisers back then, but now are doing another one to help them make it through July of this year. Um, so they're, they're really fundraising for the next six months. So if you love Autostraddle um, as much as we do here at Outward, um, I hope you'll go check uh, check out that fundraiser you can find it at um, autostraddle.biz that's autostraddle.biz all right that is about it for this month Um, but before we go it is gay
3: agenda time Um, how about you start us off Ramon So we spoke earlier about Jeremy Atherton Lynn's book, Gay Bar, uh, which made me feel really nostalgic. And one of the things that came up in his book that really was just like, I sat up in bed and I was like, "Holy shit!" Was he mentioned this movie from 1996 called "Beautiful Thing" by the director Hetty McDonald? Um, it's a movie about like two boys on like a housing estate in mm-hmm. England. Who I mean, I don't even really remember the movie, and I'm pretty sure it's not amazing. <laughs> But I was 19 years old when I watched it, and it was amazing to me at that moment. Like, truly, like, blew my mind. And I think we've reached the point in the pandemic where a lot of the new entertainment that's coming out is, like, not amazing. Like, it's Mm -hmm. not great. And I have really lost interest in a lot of, like, in keeping current with a lot of what's new. And so... That is my gay agenda item, Hetty McDonald's 1996 film um, Beautiful Thing, which is widely available on streaming, and I'm going to force my husband to watch it with me this weekend.
2: Oh, great. Love a thing that's widely available on streaming.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Christina, what do you have planned for the month?
2: Um, I'd like to recommend a GQ piece by Emma Carmichael called Megan Rapino and Sue Bird Are Goals. To be perfectly honest, I didn't think I could learn anything more about Megan Rapino and Sue <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I like them both and like reading about them and looking at photos of them. So, mm-hmm. But I was like, you know what? This has some photos in it. I might as well read it uh, and I'm sure I'll know everything there is to know. But I did learn things about them because, and I think it's in part because the piece was written by a queer woman, they were incredibly open with her about their relationship the first time they hooked up. Um, and there's something about seeing two gay celebrities who actually seem well grounded being so in love with one another, especially in the field of sports, which has been openly hostile to queer women for as long as Megan Rapino and Sue Bird have been athletes. Um, you know, Emma Carmichael just writes really beautifully about being a girl in sports coming out relatively recently, it seems. Um, and the kind of influence that people like Megan Rapino and Sue Bird, uh, have had on her. Uh, Just a really lovely read and some incredibly sexy photos. Um,
3: I was just going to say that. I was just going to say, like, the photos are really, it's like a very specific presentation of um, queer people that is considerably more sexualized than you might expect to encounter in the pages of a glossy of celebrities you know and in part it's because they have amazing bodies because they are like athletes Mm -hmm. but in in another way it's just it is very it's more frankly sexual than i can recall seeing of photos of someone like ellen and portia for example Mm -hmm. like you know they're different people it's not fair to compare but it is a much more sexy photo shoot
2: uh brian what are you recommending for this month (laughs)
1: Um, uh, so I, this is a, a gauge and item that I'm going to experience in real time with our listeners because I haven't actually seen it yet, but I have it on good authority that it will be, uh, worth your time. It is called, uh, it's a sin. It's a new HBO max, uh, miniseries from Russell Davies. Um, if you don't recognize that name, he, uh, is the guy behind, uh, the original British queer as folk. Um, And he's come back and many other shows, I should say, but he's come back uh, with another gay series this time that takes on the AIDS crisis in the 1980s in London. Um, And so, you know, that was I was reading a profile uh, about this of him and about this new series by Charles Kaiser Uh, and in the Times. And he pointed out that the original Queer as Folk left out AIDS entirely. And Russell said that that was on purpose. Because he wanted it to be, since it was going to be a really breakthrough show for straight audiences, he wanted it to be like sort of entirely um, joyful. You know, not, if not, not every plot was joyful, but it needed to be like a, sort of a, a happy representation. Um, and now he felt like it was time in his sort of our own artistic career to deal with the AIDS crisis. So, um, this show, uh, It's a Ascend, will be doing that. Um, and it starts on HBO Max on the 18th. So I think the day after our episode comes out. So I will be watching it, and I hope um, our listeners uh, will do so as well. Sounds great. Um, and June, since you're here, would you please uh, also give us a gay agenda item?
6: Yes, I am back to uh, endorse. So recently, I started listening to lesbian romance novels on Audible, partly because I'm going to speak to one of the best narrators of these novels for working, um, another Slate podcast, uh, very soon. But I was astonished to learn that that the these narrators, uh, they perform the emotion, you know? So if a person is excited, they, they put excitement in their voice. If they're scared, they put fear in their voice. And if the characters are having sex... <laughs> They put that in their voice too, and it is. I, I had no idea. I was I was fully shocked, but also <laughs> fully on board to listen to more. Um, and so I've I've just become a, a a very keen connoisseur of these books. I particularly recommend um, the works of Radcliffe, somebody I'm very familiar with already. I my favorite series of of, of trashy but very enjoyable novels are the the series the Honor series, which involve um, the uh, the Coupling, or the the relationship between the first daughter of the United States and the head of her secret service yes, team. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they have a lot of sex and there's a lot of sex in the onla- on the audible version but then it also like there's this reader Abby Craydon who does a particularly good job uh, and so I've been um, checking out other uh, other works that she's performed and, and I've discovered all these really great um, works so uh, definitely recommend the works of Radcliffe, Georgia Beers which are much more like they're all set in this um, this upstate place where there's like a a lovely animal shelter and and all, it, so it's like very wholesome, <laughs> they have sex but also
2: in the animal shelter. <laughs> no, but they
6: meet cute in the animal shelter, and and so it's very wholesome, but also quite a lot of very satisfying sex. Um, and I, you know, I don't, I don't want to make this sound weird. Like it's just part of life. It's part of their lives, <laughs> but it's really well done in the audible. I will just say that I, I, I can't believe that this is not talked about all the time. <sighs>
2: All right, that's about it for our February show. Please continue to send us your feedback and topic ideas at outwardpodcast at slate.com or via Facebook or Twitter at Slate Outward. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts and the terrible gay bar cocktail that nevertheless tastes like home. (laughs) If you like Outward... Which I think you do. Please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, and rate and review the show so other people can find it. We will be back in your feeds March 17th. Bye, guys.
3: Bye. Bye. Stay gay.
2: Stay gay, everyone.